We are launching a new series today on the book of Nehemiah. Um, But first, I want you to travel back with me in time to 1940. Uh, The place is London, England. The man we're going to look at is Winston Churchill. As you know, in 1940, the world was in crisis. Uh, Nazi Germany had invaded and taken Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, and the northern part of France. Uh, The German advance seemed to be unstoppable. And on May 9th, 1940, the Prime Minister of England at the time, Neville Chamberlain, uh, was forced to resign. He was forced to resign, one, because of his trying to appease and compromise with Hitler, which of course didn't make him very popular and didn't stop Hitler from continuing to invade countries. And two, because Chamberlain was unable to gain the support he needed to form a national government, which was essential to face the evil that was headed their way. Um, It is safe to say that the outcome of the war and the future of Europe, certainly the UK, would rest on the leadership of this new prime minister. So on May 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill succeeded Chamberlain as the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. Um, They'll put a picture up there of Churchill. So my question is, how would you feel if you were Churchill at this moment in history? If you are a leader of any kind, I'm sure you've had to face pressures. I'm sure you've had to make tough decisions, uh, sometimes unpopular decisions. If you're a leader, I'm sure at one time or another, you have felt the pressure of leadership. You know the sacrifices you have to make, uh, the courage you have to demonstrate often in the face of adversity. And when you think of what Churchill was about to face, it's hard to imagine the pressure and the stress that he was under in that moment. But it's interesting. Here's what he wrote at that time. It says this. As I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At least I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. My warnings over the last six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and were now so terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of preparation for it. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. So what caused Churchill to possess such confidence, to have such peace in his heart? He was taking over an unprepared country against the greatest military machine that the world had ever seen up to that point. 
What we see in Churchill at this moment is the peace that comes from knowing what you have to do and doing it, even in the face of adversity. There's an individual in scripture who demonstrates this same resolve, this same conviction. Peace in knowing what you have to do and doing it, even in the face of adversity. And his name was Nehemiah. So let me tell you about Nehemiah. When the book of Nehemiah begins, Nehemiah is in Susa, Persia, right? Modern day Shush in Iran. He's not in Jerusalem. Actually, he's never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Babylon. You can see in the map that there, yep, there it is, uh, that Susa is on the right, uh, just under the P of empire. And then you see Nehemiah's route westward. It's the dotted green line that kind of goes up over the Arabian desert all the way down to Jerusalem. Um, Susa was sort of the winter resort of the Persian kings. It's about 225 miles away from Babylon. The city of Susa uh, itself is over 6,000 years old, uh, making it one of the oldest cities in the world. Susa is mentioned once in the book of Daniel and in the book of Esther. Uh, Susa is mentioned 19 times. Susa is the place where Esther became queen to King Xerxes um, around 478 BC in the very palace where Nehemiah would serve King Artaxerxes. So what was Nehemiah doing in Susa? We find the answer to that question in the last verse of this first chapter of Nehemiah. He says this, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So it doesn't seem like it, but that is an amazing statement. The office of cupbearer doesn't mean anything to most of us, but the cupbearer was the king's most trusted servant. Right? The cupbearer made sure that the king's cup wouldn't kill him. One of the greatest threats to ancient kings was poison, right? Poisoning food, poisoning the drink. The cupbearer would taste the king's food, would drink the king's drink, so that if it was poisoned, the cupbearer would die instead of the king. The cupbearer title was given, of course, to someone who was unquestionably loyal, to someone who was extremely trustworthy. So how did a Jewish boy named Nehemiah right, rise to such an important position in the court of a pagan king? I'm sure it had something to do with Nehemiah's integrity, his loyalty. Um, but I'm sure, too, it had something to do with the sovereignty and the providence of God. So it was around the year 445 B.C. when Nehemiah got word about the horrible situation in Jerusalem. That is 150 years since Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had invaded Jerusalem and brought the Israelites back with them to Babylon, often referred to as the Babylonian exile. 100 
in 50 years. Generations of Jews had been born, they lived, and they died in Babylon. In verse 3, we're told this, it says this, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when Nehemiah heard this news, he sat down and he wept. It says he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed to the God of heaven. Why would he respond this way? Remember, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Um, he was living in the lap of luxury as the king's sort of right-hand man. He didn't have a worry in the world. Why would he be so torn up over what was happening over 800 miles away in Jerusalem? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, the Jews knew Jerusalem as the holy city of God. Even though they were in Babylon, it was Jerusalem that was the city of God. We can get a glimpse of Nehemiah's heart for his people and for Jerusalem by reading what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 137. I want to read just the first six verses of that. It says this. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. So even though the people of Jerusalem had been in Babylon for so long that generations were born and lived and died there, there was still no place like home, Jerusalem. So we, we see in today's scripture, which is chapter one of Nehemiah, we see that Nehemiah, compelled by God, compelled by prayer, compelled by his compassion for his people, wants to rebuild the walls that are surrounding Jerusalem. But he's going there to do more than rebuild the walls. He's also going there to rebuild and restore his people, to restore them from ruin and pain and despair to peace, security, and a new walk with God. Let's see what we can learn from Nehemiah in this first chapter of this book. We see, like I said, that he, Nehemiah was compelled by God, he was compelled by prayer, and he was compelled by compassion for his people. And I want to spend some time on those three things. Number one, compelled by God. So what can we learn here? It is important to follow and cultivate the God-given things 
that break your heart. Let's look again at verses one through four. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. I was at the fortress of Zuza. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who, are retur- who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah's concern over Jerusalem overwhelmed him. Um, He couldn't get it out of his mind. For days he mourned, he prayed, and he fasted. It it had to change the way that he looked. Uh, Later on, we find out that the king noticed that Nehemiah was in despair. Um, This was bad news because the king had the power to kill you if he didn't like the way you looked. Something was bothering Nehemiah. And others, frankly, um, couldn't care less. And it's here that we learn how important it is to follow and cultivate the God-given things that break our heart. What are the things in this world that break your heart? That you feel you have to do something about? Are they things that break God's heart? Um, If so, it could be God calling you to do something about it. So the following quote is from Andy Stanley's book, Visioneering. It says this, you will hear or see something that gets your attention. A thought related to the future will generate an emotion. Something will bother you about the way things are or the way things are headed. Unlike many passing concerns, these will stick with you. You'll find yourself thinking about them in your free time. You may lose sleep over them. You won't be able to let them go because they won't let you go. God is actually in the process of birthing and maturing a concern in many of your hearts right now, a burden, right? There is a holy burden in your heart to deal with some kind of injustice you see or to minister to a group of people, might be kids or men or women or seniors, or orphans. Might be some group of overlooked people, like people with disabilities, or shut-ins, or people in another country. You might have a burden on your heart to reach people for Christ that others aren't reaching, or to bring healing to people 
physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Maybe you can relate to people who've been hurt, who've been abused, who've been traumatized. Maybe you can relate to people who are struggling with an addiction. God could very well be in the process of birthing and maturing a concern, a burden in your heart right now. Here are some observations uh, when it comes to all this. First, this. Not everyone will share your burden or your concern. Did you notice that nobody else seemed to be concerned about the wall in Jerusalem? For years, the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. It doesn't seem like anyone else was crying about those broken down walls, right? Nehemiah's concern was Nehemiah's alone. It's possible that God has given you a concern, but you haven't cultivated that because nobody else seems to share that concern, right? Don't wait for other people. God has given you that concern for a reason. It is up to you to begin to pray about that, to begin to cultivate that concern. Here's a second observation. Not everyone who has a concern or a burden will do something about it. There may have been others who were concerned about rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, but so far, no one had done anything about it. Talking and doing are two different things. Here's a third observation. Uh, God often gives us a concern or a burden uh, before he gives us a solution. Sometimes we don't do anything about something because we don't see the solution. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. He was responsible for ensuring the safety of the king's food and drink. Nehemiah wasn't really in a position to go do anything about this broken down wall. Um, he didn't have the authority to just go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And there's no evidence that I can see uh, that he has construction skills, leadership skills. Uh, many times God will give you a concern and it won't be immediately obvious that you can do anything about it um, or that you have the skills to do anything about it or the education to do anything about it. I do know one thing. God has given a concern, a holy burden to every single person here. Every person who is listening to my voice, he has given you a burden, a holy burden, something that uh, aligns with his heart. The concern that he's given you might be completely unique. Like there may be nobody else who shares the same passion or the same calling as you do, at, at least to the same degree as you do. But I guarantee that God has given you a concern, a burden for something, for someone, or perhaps for a group of people. Your job is to cultivate that concern. 
right? Pray about it. Fast about it. Bring it before the Lord. The next thing we learn here is this. Nehemiah was compelled by prayer. Nehemiah didn't just weep, he prayed. We tend to pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. So look at verse four again. It says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So when did Nehemiah pray? Like immediately, right? His tears and his mourning were mixed with prayer. When did he stop praying? It says he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed for days. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the Christian classic, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, he also wrote this. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. So it's clear that the book of Nehemiah has a lot to teach us about prayer. Right? There are 14 recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah prayed a lot. Now, before he set out on, a pro- on his project, he prayed. When he approached the king, he prayed. When he was in trouble, he prayed. Right? The longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible is in the book of Nehemiah. It's in Nehemiah chapter 9. Some, prayers, some of Nehemiah's prayers were long. Some of Nehemiah's prayers were short. Uh, like the one in chapter 2. I'm jumping ahead a little bit just to make a point. Um, we have no idea what Nehemiah prayed, but it took place in the middle of his conversation with King Artaxerxes. It says this. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. So how long was that prayer? A sentence? A breath? Help me, Lord. Give me the right words, Father. How long do we have to pray before God hears us? Certainly we should have a a daily time before the Lord and pray. Um, But to have an ongoing conversation with God throughout our day, that's important too, right? Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer because he knew that only God could turn around the situation in Jerusalem and only God could change a king's heart. He was a man of prayer because he knew that he knew that this was the task, this was a task that only God could do. He couldn't do it. There's no way he would be able to accomplish this incredible task without God's help. One of my favorite authors, uh, Henry Blackaby, he wrote uh, Experiencing God. 
Um, he once wrote this as well. Will God ever ask you to do something you are not able to do? The answer is yes, all the time. It must be that way for God's glory and kingdom. If we function according to our ability alone, we get the glory. If we function according to the power of the Spirit within us, God gets the glory. He wants to reveal himself to a watching world. So prayer is important. The next thing we learn uh, from Nehemiah chapter 1 is this. Nehemiah is compelled by compassion for people. Compelled by compassion for people. So the lesson here is that we need to focus on what is eternal. What's eternal? God and people. Right? So there's always a correlation between what God wants to do in our individual lives and what he's up to, what he's doing in the world around us. There's a big difference between good ideas and God ideas. God's ideas always center on what is eternal. What made Nehemiah's concern a God idea? Verses 8 through 10 tell us. Now keep in mind, we are overhearing Nehemiah's prayer to God. Nehemiah says this. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. So why was Nehemiah concerned about the broken down walls? God had made a promise to his people. God said that if his people returned to him, then he would bring them back from exile and he would restore them. Nehemiah's concern wasn't, wasn't really about a wall, per se. It wasn't even about himself, right? He was living the high life in the king's palace. Now, his concern was for God's people. And we'll see in the coming weeks how he endures great sacrifice to that end. So let me ask you a question. In the end, what really matters? What will last into eternity? Our career won't. Our bank account won't. All the stuff we bought and collected over the years won't. The only thing on this earth that will last into eternity is people. Our calling as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to leverage that which is temporal for that which is eternal. To leverage that which will perish for that which will not perish. To leverage 
our time, our gifts, our abilities, our money to influence people for eternity. What matters more than that? Ask yourself, what is God calling me to do to influence a person or a group of people for eternity? Now, another way to get at this is who are your Franks? It's an acronym, Franks. Who are your friends, your relatives, your associates, like work associates, your neighbors, and then kids, like people you know through your kids? Who is God calling you to influence, to invest in? The place you live, the people you associate with, may not be an accident. How can you influence them for eternity? We can also influence people for eternity uh, through our resources. I like this quote from one of John Wesley's sermons. Wesley, of course, was the founder of the Methodists. He says this, Gain all you can without hurting either yourself or your neighbor in soul or body by applying hereto with unintermitted diligence and with all the understanding which God has given you. Save all you can by cutting off every expense which serves only to indulge foolish desire, to gratify either the desire of flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. Waste nothing living or dying on sin or folly, whether for yourself or your children. And then give all you can, or in other words, give all you have to God. Do not stint yourself to this or that proportion. Render unto God, not a tenth, not a third, not half, but all that is God's, be it more or less, by employing all on yourself your household, the household of faith, and all mankind in such a manner that you may give a good account of your stewardship when ye can be no longer stewards. Jesus said this in Luke 16, verse 9. He said, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. The Bible teaches us that everything we have is a trust from God. A trustee doesn't own anything that he's given, but he is legally accountable for all of it, right? A trustee doesn't ask, what percentage of this should I give away? A trustee is responsible to use all that they have to grow the resources to do the most good. We don't own our time, we don't own our abilities, we don't own our money. We will all see that that is true the moment that we die. The reason God has given us our time, our abilities, our gifts, our money, uh, goes beyond mere survival, it goes beyond mere self-satisfaction and enjoyment. Ultimately, it is so that we can make an eternal difference. So Nehemiah was compelled by God and his desire to see God honored 
and to see God glorified again. He was compelled by prayer. He zealously interceded for God's people, which, as we will see in the coming weeks, foreshadows Jesus, foreshadows the Holy Spirit, right? Both intercede on our behalf. And Nehemiah was compelled by his compassion for people, his people. We'll see in the coming weeks how Nehemiah leaves his comfortable, posh, Station as the king's cupbearer to travel over 800 miles away to Jerusalem only to encounter opposition, accusations, and outright attacks, right? And in spite of all of that, in 52 days, the walls are built. Not because of Nehemiah's greatness, but because of God's greatness. You too... We're put here for a purpose, a God-given purpose, right? Will accomplishing that purpose be easy? Probably not. Will there be challenges, opposition, accusations, or even outright attacks? Most likely. Well, what would you like on your gravestone? Like, let's just think about that. What would you like on your gravestone? He made his car payments on time. She had the largest collection of Beanie Babies. Anybody remember those? Or would you like an epitaph like the one given to King David? We read it in Acts 13, 36, and it says this. David had served God's purpose in his own generation. That's a good life. That is a life well lived. May we all have the courage to live such a life. Let's pray. Lord, our our prayer this morning is that you would help, help us each to serve your purposes in our generation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would highlight in each heart listening to my voice, you would cultivate that concern, that burden, that calling that you've put in each of our hearts. God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Help us each to live lives that have an eternal impact, even even if it's just in the life of one other person. Jesus, you are the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. You love your children, but God, you have a special place in your heart for the lost, the last, and the least. Your word says that whatever we do to the least of these, we are doing to you. You said this. You said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Lord, help us to live in a way that is aligned with your heart.
and help us make the rest of our lives count for eternity. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.